I'm realtor Heather Womack. I grew up in Minnesota and love all the outdoor activities we have here. In fact, I love Minnesota so much that I moved back here from Europe to raise my family in the land of beautiful hikes, refreshing clear lakes, and winter fun. That's why I'm reaching out. As a realtor, I've helped hundreds of folks buy their first home, sell the home they have, purchase a lake cabin, or start investing in Minnesota real estate. If you love adventure but need some new scenery, call me. My website is heatherwomackrealty.com. That's heatherwomack, W-O-M-A-C-K, realty.com. Hello and welcome to the Reverend Hunter Podcast. This is Tony Jones. I'm the Reverend Hunter, along with the Jimmy Olsen to my Superman, producer Brandon. You, you got me with that one. I'm not going <laughs> to I have no idea what that reference even means. I, I'm not a comic book guy, and I have no idea who Jimmy Olsen is. I'm not a comic book guy either, but you you know Jimmy Olsen. I have I have no idea who Jimmy Olsen is. Really? I legitimately don't. I uh, Jimmy Olsen was like the cub reporter. He's the photographer who like follows around Clark Kent. And oh. he never quite understands that Clark Kent is Superman, but then he—he, he, I'm sure he gets it at some point. And anyways, he's a—he's kind of a classic sidekick. I mean, Superman doesn't have like a a legit sidekick like Robin, right? You know, but Jimmy Olsen's pretty good one, I think. He's right. he's a love he's a lovable character. Okay, well, I'll look him up afterwards just to make just sure like that. you, yeah. lovable character. <laughs> Well, I appreciate that. Thank you. So, you so, bro, you got your you got your one and done Johnson and Johnson vaccine. Out of boy, how how's it feel? Uh it feels. I mean, mentally, it feels great. It's Isn't it great. I'm looking forward to the next couple of weeks uh, when it's all done and you know through my system yeah. when I can uh, hang out with a couple other people I know that have gotten their vaccine. So, looking forward. Yeah, yeah. Good. I mean, why wouldn't you get it if you get the chance to? Get I know. It? I'm getting my second dose of the Pfizer vaccine tomorrow morning. Oh, that's exciting. So we're going to be on basically the same timeline for when we're uh, in the clear. So yeah, bro, we can start recording live. Perfect. Let's do it. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah. Well, Hey, I just want to give a shout out to all the listeners out there. You know, Brandon, um, last week, uh, we did our fifth Monday episode and we, man, I'll tell you what, I have gotten more feedback from that episode than any episode I've done in the last year plus that I've been doing this podcast. Really? Yeah, man. That you and I talking about the gun, uh, the the you know hunters should be able to support common sense gun gun law reform. I got a ton. I mean, I've I've gotten several dozen emails, direct messages. I, I ended up having a beer with a guy who wanted to talk more about it this week. It, yeah, really, it um, it touched a nerve. And I've gotten some people who've been very upset with me, you know, and and told me all the reasons why there's you know no way we can ever reform gun laws in America because it's about freedom and the second amendment. But I will tell you, those voices have been drowned out 30 to one from people who've said, um, I want to talk more about this. Please keep going. I mean, it's funny. I've gotten some people DM me like DM me on Instagram and said, man, you're going to get in huge trouble. You're going to get frozen out by the entire hunting community. 
you know. Um, so I've just been like, well, I mean, I don't know. I, I'm not really in the hunting community that much. It's not my bread and butter or whatever. So uh, anyway, I, I thought I'd throw it out there. I just want to thank all the listeners for their support. And I really want to keep that conversation going. And I, I am actually thinking about and talking to some people about ways to keep that conversation going. There really is no organization out there on the at a, anywhere on the landscape that is full of hunters and gun owners who also support common sense gun laws uh, and, and some kind of gun restrictions or red flag laws, stuff like that. So uh, I don't know. I'm, I'm just having conversations, talking to people, listening, trying to figure out, you know, where we go from here. There's nothing better than just getting that open dialogue going between people, whether you agree or disagree on the subject. Yeah. At least people are talking about it. It's cool that it struck a, nor- uh, struck a nerve in such a way that yeah. people felt the need to respond to you. Yeah, it's been interesting. So a lot of, yeah, a lot of supportive people. And I just say, you know, on that same note, um, you know, if you're out there listening and you, I don't know, ha- have a company or product or a podcast of your own, or I don't know, some grad school program or anything you think, and you want to sponsor this podcast because you like this content and would like, you know, your brand or your name to be attached to this content. We would love to have you as a sponsor for the Reverend Hunter podcast and, and on the talk North network. And you can easily get a hold of me through any social media, my emails and my website or whatever. Um, but uh, yeah, we'd, we'd love to bring some sponsors on board and keep the, you know, keep this podcast, keep the content coming to you for, you know, months and years to come. And similarly, if you like it, we'd love for you to uh, subscribe and, and rate and review and share it with other people because that's, well, Brandon, you know, I mean, you you manage a whole ton of podcasts and that, you know, getting that buzz out there is super important. There's nothing better than the buzz. Uh, leave a comment too. You know, it, yeah. It, while you're rating it, leave a comment. Let people know. Word of mouth is the best way to get the podcast uh, spread out there to everybody. So, yeah, we uh, as always just appreciate anybody that's listened already because, uh, yeah, it's it's been a fun thing. Yeah, for sure. Well, I think we're going to get a lot of great feedback on this episode too. This is one of my favorite people in the world, and you're going to hear all about how we met. And you're going to get a real sense of this guy. Joseph Edelheit is a rabbi. He's a professor. He's um, an expert uh, on the philosopher Paul Ricoeur. He, uh, he was just named the University of Chicago Divinity School Alumnus of the Year this year. He's just an incredible human being. He's meant a great deal to me and my family. And uh, we had such a great conversation. I mean, this guy, I gotta tell you, I love him. And, uh, and you will too, when you listen to it. So, uh, without further ado, Brandon, I'm just going to go ahead and throw it right to the interview with Rabbi Joseph Edelheit, my dear friend. Thank you for listening to the Reverend Hunter podcast. My dear Rabbi Joseph, thank you for joining me on the Reverend Hunter podcast. Hey, Tony, great to be with you. Great. You know, um, before we get into theology and Bible and everything, I've told this story before when we've been like in live uh, speaking venues together, but I want to tell it on the podcast, and that's the first time I ever met you. 
please. I I had just had my biggest this biggest speaking gig of my career. It was to like fifteen hundred Methodist teens in Nashville, and uh, my I had been having back problems, and I was by the end of this weekend like they had to roll me in a wheelchair up onto the stage to give my talks. I was in. I was really in bad shape. My left leg had gone completely numb. It's still to this day is, hasn't fully recovered from from that. Um, but I <laughs> I walked in just to set the scene for listeners. I walked in to the Delta Lounge, which you know is uh, it, it's a little more rough and tumble these days. But back in those days, this is uh, two thousand. I believe it was two thousand nine. I think it was January of 2009 and it was very, it's very civilized. Everyone's very quiet. And I poured myself, you know, like a, a, a triple whiskey soda. (laughs) And I was walking with a little, my little um, paper plate with some carrot sticks and hummus. (laughs) And I was walking just to sit quietly and wait for my flight when I hear across the Delta Lounge a very loud voice say, you need back surgery. <laughs> and, I don't uh, know if struck- those were the first words, but I No, I think it was. I said, I think it was, you look like you need back surgery. <laughs> yes, that's right. And, and then it was, you know, I've had three back surgeries, 24 heart attacks. Well, who are you? And we, 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 we got into a conversation and I discovered that you are a rabbi and that you were in Nashville consulting with an evangelical Christian rock band and teaching them about the Hebrew scriptures. And I was like, Correct. this is, this is, if there's a God, God ordained this meeting. And we became instantaneous in our sense of respect, admiration, and how many more dialogues can build upon this initial happenstance. And you know I've said it, coincidence, according to Einstein, is just God's way of remaining anonymous. So (laughs) we were supposed to know each other. Yeah, that that did was an immediate spark to a friendship that has lasted, you know, these these uh, what twelve years now, um, and you've been a great friend to me through the hardest decade of my life, um, and we've had the opportunity to work together. You hired me to teach at St. Cloud State University, where I taught a couple semesters. Um, we've preach together. We've spoken at preaching conferences together. And we're just, you know, generally have, have remained really close friends. So and you I'm, wrote the forward to what am I missing? Questions about being human. Yeah. Your new book, I did write the forward to it. I wrote a blurb for your forthcoming book. And at my big book launch party, um, which we held at the On Being Studios in uh, Minneapolis, you introduced me. I did. So anyway, just to set the scene uh, for for listeners to know that we have a longstanding friendship and, and mutual admiration. Um, 
Rabbi, why don't Jews hunt? This has been one of the, at first, I thought it was a silly question. Then a very serious question about which I've become intensive. And now I'm obsessed with finding you some Jews who hunt. So <laughs> in lieu of my ability to bring you hunting Jews, I offered to come on the podcast and to discuss what is interesting. You are a profoundly spiritual human being. Watching your videos, reading your blogs, listening to your podcasts, I have no doubt that the depth of your spiritual reality is magnified when you hunt. I, I, I don't question that. Yeah, and yet, and yet you have many times texted me when you've seen something on Instagram or called me and said, what are you doing? I don't understand it. How do you go out there and kill these animals? And, you know, like, because it's just not, it, it hasn't, it's hunt. not something you're familiar with. Right. So let me make sure we don't overstate the obvious. Obviously, some Jews <laughs> hunt. Yes. Uh, I, I, I am not making a judgment uh, sociologically, religiously. Uh, it is not, to use the old Lenny Bruce line, no, Jews don't, as a matter of course, hunt. We don't, don't understand it. And, and that was one of the most difficult conversations we've ever had when I said, I don't understand the question. How do you even get to the question? It involves guns, being outdoors. <laughs> this is a sport. You don't need it for meat, leather. You have moved to a better appreciation for the socio-cultural gap. So let's begin with... I am a reform rabbi mm -hmm. with doctoral work in Christian theology. My moniker is dialogue. So given yep. that, and my friend Tony Jones wants to know, let's begin with scripture because we share scripture. Mm -hmm. So Nimrod, Nimrod who built the Tower of Babel and is referred to in the first 11 chapters of Genesis as a great hunter. Yes. So I can't even say there isn't hunting in the Bible. There is. And in those first 11 mythopoeic chapters, Nimrod. A mighty hunter before the Lord. Yes. Right. So Nimrod, the rabbis, when I say the rabbis, I mean the sages from the second through fifth century, the rabbis who interpret, who write, who mm -hmm. create homiletically, ethically. The rabbis want to know who this Nimrod is. Sure. One of the most famous Midrashim fables is that Nimrod knew that Abraham was going to bring monotheism to Western religious world 
captured him, threw him into a dungeon, and then a furnace, which he survives. Okay, Nimrod. so this, well, now let me just ask you then. So this isn't just commentary on the scripture at this point. This is making up, making up new stories from whole Correct. cloth. Correct. Okay. And they are, if you will, riffing on he was a great hunter. Since he's the first person in Hebrew scripture to get that tag, mm-hmm. what is that tag? Who, mm-hmm. who is this guy? And if the Tower of Babel were not uh, m- the most egregious level of his malevolence, mm-hmm. let's have him attempt to destroy the initial monotheist. Okay, so he's because he's the builder of the Tower of Babel, he's a villain in the in the story. Correct. Just by his association with the hubris of trying to build a tower that would reach the Lord. For which God punishes. Let's take away one language and see how you do with your communication skills. Okay. So Nimrod is a mighty hunter before the Lord, but that is said in the context of he's the, the contractor behind uh, the, the building of the Tower of Babel. So he's a bad guy. Well, I and would the even rabbis... say by today's standards, he's the developer. He, oh, he went out, even worse. got the money. <laughs> he, he went out and subcontracted. So however any of us want to think of real estate developer, uh, current and immediate past politicians included, <laughs> Yes, gotcha. Okay, so then the later rabbis, when they're making commentary on this, they basically are piling on, making him even more villainous. Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. No question. After Nimrod, we get to a figure that is so central to Hebrew scripture, people often forget Esau the older twin brother of Jacob, okay? Yes, the he hairy He was one. a hunter. Yeah. And Jacob was a tent dweller. Uh, was the he-man, went out, and of course in the famous scene, will bring venison back to prepare for his dying father. He is a hunter. Jews have said, me, be like Esau? No, 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 no. We're the sons of Jacob. We aren't like Esau. Right. Using your term, the rabbis pile on. They want to make sure that if there's any ambiguity about the value of Esau, they take care of it. Esau has a son, Eliphaz, who with the concubine Timnah have a son, Amalek. Amalek in the Hebrew Bible is the ancient world's most evil person. Mm -hmm. Okay. Mm -hmm. Exodus 17, Deuteronomy 25, and the book of Esther. Okay. So the rabbis will even suggest that Esau, Edom, 
becomes Rome. Really? Yep. I yep. like him even more. <laughs> so. <laughs> and Jews dislike and him even more. <laughs> and eventually Christianity. So yeah. hunting quintessential to the twin brother, older twin brother, the not chosen twin brother, mm -hmm, the mm -hmm. twin brother who isn't included in the covenant. We're going to make sure that you don't misunderstand that hunting is okay. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I can remember as a teenager, my rabbi saying, never be a follower of Esau. Really? Oh, yes. My rabbi was obsessed. This was in San Francisco in the late 50s, very early 60s. Wanted to make sure those of us who followed, studied him, that we saw the difference. We followed Jacob. There is nothing about Esau that we hmm. should follow. Hmm. Including so, his including his hunting. Yep. Jews yeah. don't do that. Jews wow. don't do that. So after, after we go through the Genesis narrative, mm -hmm. in the laws, as it were, in the rest of the Hebrew Bible, hunting is permissible. If, the issues of the way the slaughter is done are met. So now we go not just to the question of can you eat or use elements from a non-domestic animal? Okay. Let's let's talk let's talk for a second about butchering animals and for for people who aren't familiar you know, everyone's heard of, um, you know, Jewish kosher meat or seen the label for it. And they've heard of um, Muslim halal meat. Christians have no such kind of um, uh, uh, parameters around butchering meat. Tell us about the where that comes from in Judaism, but also why it has persisted, because there's a lot of stuff we read in the in the law that has not persisted you know you Correct. Correct. you know what i'm saying like there there's a, how many 630 some laws or whatever 613 right 613 and they're not all kept i mean it's 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 on a scale how they're no. kept but a lot of jews still are very serious about the the food preparation um uh laws so wh wh why why is that persisted Okay, so first there are, both in Exodus and later in Leviticus, clear categories of forbidden foods mm -hmm. and permitted foods. Let's take care first of those categories. Okay. Jews cannot eat from any, what we would call bottom dwellers, shellfish, Shrimp. or fish that don't have scales and fins. Okay. Okay. We can't eat from any animal that does not have a cloven hoof and chew its cud. Okay. Now, 
before everyone jumps through the podcast realm, <laughs> this is not about health. That is the binary reflection. Jews didn't do this because of issues of health. Now those issues of health, trigonosis, hepatitis, mm -hmm. aren't going to be a question. Ergo, you could do it. Okay. No. 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 God said, others eat this. You can't. So it's a way that, that the Hebrews differentiated themselves from their neighbors. Correct. Was their worship it, it, was different. Their God was different. Their diet was different. Correct. Okay. And I grew up never eating pork. Okay. Because a pig does not have a cloven hoof. It, yes, it does not. And look, um, the issues today of agribusiness and the question of how we raise and slaughter mm -hmm. uh, enormous numbers of domesticated animals already raises some questions at a yeah. different threshold. Kashrut is a discipline of the mundane that makes it holy. Hmm. I take that which I never think about and I give myself a discipline that requires that I stop, look at the label. There's another statement in the text that says, you should not boil a kid, a young goat, in the milk of the mother. Mm-hmm which is an ancient Canaanite fertility rite. Mm. That was interpreted to be, you should not mix meat and milk. Yeah, so it doesn't actually say you should not mix meat and milk. No, it's an interpretation. So you could eat a creamy pasta sauce with beef in it. Yes. It, so you have biblical stricture, prohibition, Mm -hmm. limits, then rabbinic interpretation of those texts. Right. So you have some contemporary Jews who, quote, keep biblical kashrut. They won't eat pork and shellfish, okay. but will mix meat and milk. I see. So, <laughs> so it's a judgment okay. call now, on some of these. There, there's no question. Do you want to add this both private and public. Mm -hmm. And this is the question. It's a public discipline. When you go to someone's home, when you go out, there is a significant category of food that is simply not going to be for you. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, okay. So... Now we go back to hunting, and that is linked to a small verse in Noah about blood. You can't eat an animal that's alive. While can't. it's alive? Well, there's, there's some <laughs> ambiguity in the context of the blood as the essence of life. Okay. Okay. How an animal is slaughtered 
is not specifically annotated in biblical scripture, but it is immensely developed in rabbinic literature. Okay. A special knife must be, without any nicks, hmm. drawn across the animal's neck okay. to go through the jugular without nicking the spine. The animal's blood is drained. So there is a significant rabbinic literature that hunting, even if you need the food, you have to kill the animal in such a way that you are able to slaughter it, hmm. not eat an animal that has been murdered, but not slaughtered. Yeah, because by if you're a hunter, it's you're obviously killing your animal with, I mean, these days we're killing our animals with a bullet or with an arrow. I suppose in earlier times, they might have also killed animals with a sling or with a addle addle or, you know, there were all sorts of tools that... Or trap. But you could, I was going to say, you could, I suppose, trap an animal and then slaughter it in the way you've described, which is drawing a very sharp blemish-free knife across its throat. But I'll tell you what, I mean, you could do that with a bird. Uh, you would have a hard time doing that with a stag, and it would be virtually impossible to do it with a moose or something right. like that. I mean, these are animals that weigh thousands of pounds. You, According to the Talmud, it is permitted to slay wild animals only when they invade human settlements. But you <laughs> okay. have to pursue them in the woods, in their own dwelling place. And when they are not invading human habitations, it is prohibited. So this is funny, Joseph, because here's where, I mean, you, you, um, you have since moved, but you used to live in the same Minneapolis suburb in which I reside. And, uh, you know, you see, you see deer and you see turkeys, but what's funny is you're not allowed as a resident of Edina, Minnesota to <laughs> sneak up behind a deer and slit its throat, even though you probably could because they're so inured to human contact. Um, <laughs> so the one thing we're prohibited by law from doing the 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 rabbis say would actually be permissible because those white-tailed deer are encroaching on human settlement. Look, I, I think after we go through all of the legal brandishments, uh -huh. we get to the cultural anthropology yeah. that uh, in the diaspora, certainly since the 10th century, Jews are not included in the guilds, not included in the access to hunting grounds. Then finally, early modernity and, and certainly throughout the 20th century, Jews are by and large urban. Uh-huh, right. And you're not going to get Jews to be able to defend the question, why are you spending time doing this? And, and I've learned from you 
Well, there is also a sport called hunting. Mm -hmm. uh, I I try to understand what that means. Um, I come closer to the question of understanding it in fishing. Yeah. No, I'm not. You know, I don't really use the term sport when it comes to hunting, although some people, you know, some academics refer to what I do as sport hunting simply because it's not required for my family's protein needs to be met. So it is because it is a voluntary activity, it's uh, they classify it as sport hunting. Let me ask you this. Now, this is something I actually have no idea about. Um, because I was thinking about this, and I think it's, you know, you think about like where where the Hebrews came from. And, you know, there are stories, of course, in the Hebrew scripture about um, uh, apex predator animals like lions and bears and interactions between biblical heroes and these uh, um, kind of animals. Um, but of course they, you know, maybe weren't dwelling in like the, at the same time that native Americans were dwelling in North America and they had, you know, uh, woodland caribou and they had, um, uh, buffalo and they had deer and things like this. But what, what, if any, was there of Jewish presence on the American frontier? as the frontier moved, you know, gradually west across the continent and, you know, people were, um, you know, Europeans were hunting uh, for their food as they were settling the west. Well, Levi Strauss <laughs> don't, right? don't get much more yeah. western and urban. Uh, I am a fifth generation native San Franciscan. Wow. My great-great-grandfather okay. came from what was Prussia uh, just after the failed 1848 Prussian Revolution and uh, attempted to create some livelihood in California during the gold rush. Mm -hmm. I would imagine that in the still developed urban areas as we moved from the east to the west coast, Jews were more comfortable being early merchants okay. than they were being. Now, that, that is not to say uh, that there weren't Jews in covered wagons who had rifles and shot bison. We're, we're talking about a, um, a meme, yeah. Are are you going to see, other than Gene Wilder in the Frisco <laughs> Kid, uh, are you going to see Jews um, creating a lifestyle inclusive of mm -hmm. hunting? H hunting, as I understand it, even today, hunting is not something you can only do partway. Right. Okay. Yeah, that's right. So uh, I don't know Jews. When I was the rabbi of Temple Israel in Minneapolis, one of the great moments of stupidity in my career, Tony, was talking to a bar mitzvah boy 
uh, about how much his father liked ice fishing. Okay. And I said, I, I don't understand what you're saying. You, you go out in a hut at 20 degrees below zero. His father heard this and sent me a note. His bar mitzvah gift are new ice fishing boots. <laughs> okay. Oh, oh, okay. Okay. I, I have learned my lesson the way I learned my lesson when I was the rabbi of New Iberia, Louisiana. And the president's son got a 12-gauge shotgun for his bar mitzvah gift. Really? Okay. Yes. Okay. Okay. So uh, I'm more urban than is urbanly possible. <laughs> and when I meet new friends like you, the gift, the blessing of that is, I need to rethink and re-engage my own self-stereotypes. Mm -hmm. So when you said, let's talk about this. Okay, now I gotta, I, there, there's no more binary sloughing away. Now I have to sit down and really think mm -hmm. Nimrod, Esau, and Kashrut. Those three biblical then we can get into urban and rural. Let me ask you this. I mean, one of the things I appreciate so much about Judaism, I mean, about you in particular, but Judaism in general, is I think that Jews, the Jews I know, really um, are very deliberate about living ethical lives. And they're, of course, guided by an ancient code and law that comes from the Lord, but you know, also there's all sorts of stuff we do on a daily basis that are not covered by those 613 um, um, laws. You know, a, a, one of the things that hunters like like me say is um, if you're going to eat meat, you know, if you are a meat eater, if you're a carnivore, you are implicated in the death of animals. And um, it's, it's more ethical to be intimately involved in the death of that animal than it is to outsource the death of that animal to people who, you know, in our culture, it's not like you and I walk down the street and there's the butcher in the window, you know, slaughtering the animal and cutting it up and you're walking in and saying, I'd like that piece of meat and I'd like those ribs, you know, it's... It's all been hidden away, um, and it, it's it's what you know you've seen uh, on social media. You know, pictures of me butchering an animal or hanging a deer or something like that. And you know, what's a Jewish ethical reflection on eating meat and yet not, um, you know, not being intimately connected with the death of that animal? So let's back up and um, look at the highly problematic ethics of the large kosher meatpacking. Oh, I okay. stopped keeping kosher as a family uh, when there was a scandal around illegal immigrants in Iowa. Okay. Okay. 
uh, a rabbi in Minnesota, very prominent in the conservative movement, recreated a whole new standard of ethics regarding uh, the slaughter, how the animals are slaughtered, and the people who do it, not using 15-year-old immigrants, okay? So I, I don't eat forbidden foods, but I've stopped buying only kosher meat because of the ethics, because the ultra-Orthodox control what is determined to be kosher. Mm. And the non-Orthodox community is marginalized, silenced, ignored. So I appreciate your question. I know a lot of Jews who have decided that the questions you ask now require vegetarian and vegan responses. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That they'll simply say, we're done now. It, it isn't worth it for reasons of health. Um, so I, I want your dialogue to continue to demand of Jews Nimrod, Esau, blood, how you handle the agribusiness of domesticated meat. Mm-hmm. That, that's a, it's a very good question. Yeah. Uh, I think at, at this point in my life, um, it's too late for me to say, Tony, take me out and teach me to hunt. But if I were... 35, not nearly 75, you might convince me Mm -hmm. that there is something about engaging in the wild Mm -hmm. where the misuse of animal life and human life is not the burden of consumer. Yeah, uh... I mean, of course, I'd still like to take you out. Maybe we'll go ice fishing. (laughs) no i would never take you ice fishing i don't even like to go ice fishing i just do it because there's nothing else to do in february um at least you could come over to my house sometime when i'm butchering an animal and yes and 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 i would love to do that yeah i think that let me ask you this okay this is a related issue for those of us who hunt because as as you probably know um, hunters are among the most actively engaged uh, in conservation of anybody in our society. I mean, there are definitely, you know, vegans who who also are working on conservation issues, but the most powerful conservation organizations in the country are Ducks Unlimited, Pheasants Forever, the Rough Grouse Society, the Quality Deer Management Association, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I admire the Hebrew Bible for its repeated care of wild animals. There is no such um, uh, passage in the New Testament, in the Christian scripture, that says, take care of the animals that wander into your field, you know, like leave stuff for them to eat as well. So I wonder um, what you, you know, what's the Jewish 
history and legacy of that of of considering those those animals well we go back to noah um why not if if the world as you had wanted it has become so corrupt that you need a do-over mm-hmm mm-hmm why bring the animals of the corrupt world into the new world? And I've always thought, okay, uh, it's not all or nothing. Uh, the animals, their diversity, the dynamic of that wonderful Eden-like description, let's pull that forward to the do-over. Let, let's bring them onto the ark. So there's a interesting husbandry several times in the text. Uh, the powerful Genesis 22, Abraham is about to slaughter his son Isaac. Uh, the Moloch Adonai, the messenger from God says, no, don't turn around. And there's a ram caught in the thicket. Mm -hmm. Okay. A, one-year-old lamb is the source of the sacrifice and blood needed for redemption in the mm -hmm. Exodus. Humans are not portrayed as being able to live alone. Hmm. We live in a shared, divinely created ecosystem. And animals are always aligned with what God needs. Hmm. From Abraham to the final plague and the exodus, all the way through all the biblical sacrifices. So how do I translate that into 21st century ethics? Mm -hmm. Be aware that you're one of not the entire ecosystem. Mm -hmm. You share this ecosystem. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I I find it, you know, <laughs> I hunt in a lot of places where I look out over the fields and they've been basically raped of their nutrients. You know, they're planted one year their corn, the next year their soybeans, and then corn, then soybeans, and corn, then soybeans. That's it. There's no cover crops. There's no, um, the, the ditches are mowed or plowed under. There's no place for, you know, an, uh, a, a pheasant to lay um, a clutch of eggs. There's no tree stand or willow thicket for a couple deer to hide in and sleep and spend the night protected from predators. It's just as far as the eye can see, it, you know, it's, it's plowed under. And I think about the, you know, what's just like baked into the cake of Hebrew farming in the Hebrew scripture is let your field lie fallow and if the stranger or the wild animal at once every seven years, that field has to lie fallow and whatever grows there grows and you don't harvest it. It's for the, it's for the wanderer and it's for the wild animal. And not only every seven years, but annually 
you have to leave the Shemitah, the gleanings in the corner, mm. to those to whom you can't sell it. Mm. So built into the obligation, this land is not yours. Mm -hmm. It's given to you as part of the covenant with the God who brings you to the land. Mm -hmm. Treat it with respect that it's shared. And what you just noted, everything about human relationship to the earth continues to illuminate you share it. Mm -hmm. It's not yours. So consumer demand and capital income mm -hmm. have pushed aside the necessity of sharing. Yeah, I mean, I just think you'd, you'd never convince a modern farmer to do that. But if, if the fields did lie fallow on a cycle of every seven years and if they took the the you know the crop that they couldn't sell and dumped it in the corner of the field and left it there that we'd have 10 times as much wild game animals as as we do because there'd be you know they would eat those gleanings but instead all that stuff is you know if you can't sell it to people it's actually turned into cow or pig or chicken feed you know um e even craze crazily if it's leftover chicken parts it's turned into chicken feed <laughs> i mean it's uh it's something well okay before before i let you go i want to shift gears and talk about your new book that i'm I, so proud of this that i wrote uh, the forward for that i love and i i do want to hear um you know, give us a little outline of what the book's about. And then I'm super interested in the kind of feedback you're getting, because I know you've been zooming in to synagogues around, you know, the Western Hemisphere. And I'd love to hear what kind of uh, what you're hearing from people. What am I missing? Questions about being human, which let everyone know uh, was in so many fabulous intimate ways brought into being by Tony Jones, and for which I'm profoundly grateful. My little book about six biblical characters, uh, the three pairs, Abraham, Rachel, Miriam, Moses, David, and Esther, and each pair is missing one of the defining characteristics of Jewish identity. Abraham and Rachel have God, and they have the promise of the community, but they don't have revelation. They don't have Torah. Mm -hmm. Moses and Miriam have both God and Torah, but they never get into the land, neither of them, and have a, a fractured relationship with the community. David and Esther, the king and queen, have more of Israel than anyone prior they have the ethics of the prophets, but neither has God. Mm. David, of course, is denied the opportunity when he asks to build the holy temple. And Esther is one of two books that never mentions God. Mm. So I have been bringing the idea of questions that we are not perfect, that that is in fact an idiom 
and I've been quoting three studies they've done of teens, perfectionism, and the pandemic. Hmm. And the number of our teenagers who have found over this past year even more emotional debilitation because yeah. the times yes. in which we're living don't permit any access to that constant reaffirming of you're mm -hmm. perfect, you're perfect. Um, I have been in synagogues. I have done this uh, in ways that I did not expect. Yes. People are um, thrilled with my pushing against perfectionism. They're fascinated. Rabbi, you're telling me that Jews don't have to be perfect? And in fact, I say they can't be. Uh, it, mm. it isn't built into the identity. Uh, my former congregation in Chicago, where I did a weekend rabbinic scout, has now hired me for uh, seven months, one Monday a month, to teach the whole book. Awesome. Uh, this coming uh, weekend, um, uh, I will be in St. Petersburg, Florida, where my kids, Eve and Kit, live, and will be doing something in their honor. Uh, I, I think the people are finding in the stories the memoir-esque ability to talk about the Bible inside a human life mm -hmm. and my contemporary interpretation. And you told me when I brought you the idea, the more you can give people an opportunity to relate to you, yeah. to your story, they will find their own story. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm so glad to be associated in, in a small way with that book. And it it's, does not surprise me in the least that it's getting such a warm reception at uh, synagogues and temples all over the place. And hopefully, you know, your magic is in your public speaking. And I just want to tell, you know, listeners that if, if, Rabbi Joseph ever comes to your town on a on his book tour that you know I don't care your religious background go to that synagogue and hear him preach because that's that's really that's when he he has the magic um the book is awesome but man you're a you're a oral communicator and a, a, a par excellence so we'll we'll put uh, we'll, Brandon and I will put a link to Joseph's uh, uh, website on the in the show notes, so it, it'll be on your phone or in your computer. However, you're listening to this podcast, you just click on it, and that's where you can see not only you know where he's speaking, but obviously where the book is for sale on Amazon and and other venues. So, uh, and within the next that. month to six weeks a brand new book called Reading Scripture with Paul Ricoeur. Uh, Lexington Books, uh, a very different kind of book, much more yeah. scholarly, uh, 12 important essays, international Ricoeur scholars, a part of the Lexington Book Ricoeur Studies series. And Jim Moore, who uh, studied with Ricoeur, I studied with Ricoeur, we have worked on this, because nothing in the Ricor library until we 
came up with this was about scripture. Uh, most people want to embrace Paul Ricoeur as one of the most significant continental philosophers, but he loved scripture. And yeah. his work in developing hermeneutics, his interpretation theory for texts, this is, I hope, will renew the way people look at Paul Ricoeur and his work on scripture. That's excellent. Well, he's such an important figure as, very much to you and, and also to me. I mean, he, yeah, he's, he's in my kind of canon of the, the great um, people I look up to and have read a lot of. So that's also awesome. Well, my friend, what it's just such a joy always to talk to you, especially when you get to open the scripture to us. And um, I love, I mean, I think that's, you know, what you said at the opening that just your guiding thesis in life is dialogue. And that fact that you wrote a book for which the title is a question. And that, I mean, that's how you, of course, that's how you get into dialogue with other human beings by being generally uh, a genuinely inquisitive and asking questions and not making closed ended statements. And even this, you know, when you, um, when, when, when you've expressed uh, surprise at my hunting, it's, it's always been a question. You've always, you've been like, what are you doing? That's easy. That's easy. You know, it's never, you don't condemn it. You, you know, it's always been like, I don't understand it. Tell me more. Why do you do this? And, so I love it that you've even done did some homework to prep for this, and um, you know maybe we can maybe we can uh, co-author a an article about hunters in the Bible sometime. <laughs> very good, very good. Thank you, my friend. Love to you, you and uh, blessings on your travel, and to you and your family. <laughs>